This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehayas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. And let me remind the international community and the world leaders, you promised... You promised in 2011, you promised to Somalia never again. You promised again in 2017, never again. Why is it happening again? Also, security forces used stun grenades and tear gas to disperse crowds in Sudan. And our football experts look back on the exciting conclusion of the World Cup. All these and more coming up on African News Tonight. First, our top story, Sudanese security forces are using stun grenades and tear gas to disperse hundreds of protesters rallying in Khartoum on the fourth anniversary of the uprising, which led to the ouster of longtime leader Omar al-Bashir. Nasrin El-Sayam, a Sudanese youth protester in Khartoum and chair of the UN Secretary-General's Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change, describes the scene unfolding today to VOA's Carol Van Dam. There is a, a massive protest that started uh, in the regular buses towards the palace, the presidential palace, and all of the bridges leading to the palace, the two nearest bridges, which is the McNamara Bridge and the White Nile Bridge, are closed with big containers. Yet um, the group from Khartoum and the protest were so big, and there is a lot of uh, protesters and also, there is a lot of forces. Big number of tear gases are being. I mean, um, I some, excuse me, I'm crying a bit. It's uh, uh, there's a lot of tear gas in the air, and also there is a lot of injured people. Um, you know, the protesters use motorcycles as small um, uh, ambulances where ambulances cannot reach the areas where there is um, a massive engagement. So they use the um, motorcycles and there is a lot of motorcycles that went to the hospital already a lot of people are injured we hoped we thought also that um with the signing of the agreement maybe the violence against the protesters will go a bit lower unfortunately it's definitely not the case and um people are still demonstrating um there is big group so what happens is there's a group and then they try to make a box around it so the group doesn't uh, move forward so uh, the boxes sometimes um, succeed uh, breaking the, the path of the protesters but sometimes not so basically um, now we have three groups um, or three boxes as they call it sometimes the protesters break the box and go inside but as a lot of sorry, as a lot of protesters already noticed, these tear gas that they are using now are uh, by far harder than the one they used before. Uh, also, the violence is increasing. Until now, there is no gun firing with with live gunfire. We, we've heard from Reuters that they're also the Sudanese security forces are also using stun grenades. Have you seen that? Yes. Um, I have heard it, not seen it. I can hear the sound, but it's not in the area where I am. Um, maybe um, because uh, normally, as they, uh, as the protesters are going closer to actually break the the box, the forces goes more wider to uh, stop the movement and to stop the protesters. So I think our group is not very much advanced. That's why they didn't use the extra weapons with us. But in other areas, I can still hear it. Yes. 
So tell me about the size of the protests. We're hearing that they're the biggest in several months. Is that true? Well, um, it is somehow true, uh, but it's also not very much because, unfortunately, the size of the protest is normally measured by how many people in one area. And this is not correct because, especially after closing the bridges, most of the protesters became non-central. So we have one in Khartoum North, or we can call it Bahri. We have one in Omdurman, and we have one in uh, in Khartoum. The one in Khartoum is really big and quite bigger than the ones before. That is true. But when you calculate the whole number, um, it is a massive protest. Unfortunately, because they closed the bridges, we are not able to, to gather in one place as we used to do before. That's Nasreen El Saim, a protester in Khartoum, describing today's demonstrations as Saim is chairperson of the UN Secretary General's Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change. She was speaking with VOA's Carol Van Dam via Teams from the Sudanese capital. Tunisia's Electoral Commission says runoffs will be held in most regions with 21 candidates winning outright victory in Saturday's parliamentary elections. Reuters says only 8.8% of the eligible voters cast ballots in the first poll since President Kais Saeed closed parliament last year and held a successful referendum that enhanced his powers. Most of the opposition, including the Islamist and Hada party, boycotted the vote, which saw 1,058 candidates, including 121 women, compete for 161 seats. Reuters says 10 of the seats had only a single candidate and another seven had no candidates at all. The government says the second round of elections will take place on January 20th and include 133 districts. In South Africa, President Cyril Ramaphosa has retained the leadership of the governing African National Congress, the ANC, at the party's elective conference in Johannesburg. His re-election mandates him to take the ANC into national polls in early 2024 and to continue his fight against corruption. But as Darren Taylor reports, the conference has revealed an ANC in sharp decline, racked by infighting. Ramaphosa Cyril, his total is 2,476. The moment Ramaphosa's re-election was confirmed, with 5,000 delegate votes from nine provinces up for grabs, he beat his closest rival, former health minister Zweli Mukize, by about 600 votes. Animosity was sparked between the former friends earlier this year, when the president's anti-corruption task force arrested and charged Nkize for alleged financial crimes related to COVID pandemic funds. At the conference, ANC members who remain loyal to former president Jacob Zuma, ousted by Ramaphosa at the same event five years ago, tried to disrupt proceedings and sway votes away from the incumbent and toward Nkize. But Ramaphosa stood firm promising renewal and rebirth of an organization becoming increasingly unpopular because of corruption, rising unemployment and crime, and debilitating electricity outages. Over almost three decades, the ANC has failed to stem poverty and create jobs in South Africa, choosing instead to enrich itself, according to critics. Ramaphosa spokesperson Vincent Maguena 
told reporters the president's ready to give the country a new ANC. We feel extremely energized that the president will be able to accelerate the institutional reforms as well as the economic reforms that he has initiated and undertaken. And some of those reforms have started bearing fruit. And so the president is... Ramaphosa is himself afflicted by a scandal related to the theft of almost $600,000 from his game ranch in 2020. A legal panel has found the president possibly committed criminal conduct, a finding he's disputing in court. But Ramaphosa's support within the ANC from senior officials such as Faiz Jacobs never wavered. We believed in him and we continue to push the renewal agenda. And I think we are very happy, we're over the moon, that our president has uh, very decisively, very emphatically showed and demonstrated the confidence of all of our branches. And it is a unity and renewal vote of confidence in the presidency. Jacobs, like many in the ANC, presents the clear dissent and division within the ruling party as healthy democracy. We all had our different preferences. We all had our favorites. But now that leadership represents us as the ANC. So let's rally, let's defend, let's consolidate around that. And I don't want to have this thing about them and us. We are one ANC now. But even top party members say the internal power struggles, many to do with who controls government money, are destroying the ANC. Political analyst Sam Mkokeli says being at this conference was like attending the ANC's funeral. He says the party is riddled with criminals and incompetents who won't allow Ramaphosa to make the sweeping good governance changes necessary to turn South Africa around. So you can actually put money on it, the ANC will fall below 50% in the coming election and they seem not to understand that. They seem unprepared to be dealing uh, with the consequences or even doing a substantively different uh, work and approach uh, to avoid that. Bad feeling between rival camps in the ANC was evident well after results were announced. Party members singing, not with a united voice, but to insult one another. Mkokeli and other experts say the ANC is doomed no matter what Ramaphosa does or doesn't do going forward. Either the party will split, they say, or it will fade into dwindling significance. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Ghana has suspended payments on its foreign debt as Accra works with the IMF to restructure its economy. According to the French news agency AFP, the foreign ministry says the new policy will suspend all service payments on euro bonds, commercial term loans, and most bilateral debt. AFP says the government spends more than half of its revenues on paying off loans. The economy has been severely affected by an inflation rate of over 50% and a drop in the value of its currency, the CD, which has increased its debt burden by $6 billion. Last week, the government signed a $3 billion deal with the IMF to improve the economy and improve market confidence in Ghana. The World Health Organization warns billions of people who lack access to safe drinking water, sanitation and hygiene 
are at risk of deadly infectious diseases. The finding appears in the WHO and UN's Waters Global Analysis and Assessment of Sanitation and Drinking Water Report, issued this week. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. Data collected from 121 countries show billions of people are facing a health crisis, and states must act urgently to improve water, sanitation, and hygiene, known as WASH. The report, the most comprehensive to date, finds most countries are not on track to achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goal of providing water and sanitation for all by 2030. Bruce Gordon is Unit Head, Water, Sanitation, Hygiene and Health at the WHO. While dramatic acceleration is needed, he says only 25% of countries are on track to meet their target for sanitation and only 45% for drinking water. And this is against a backdrop of a tremendous amount of you know, disease um, from diarrhea, uh, linked to ingestion of, of poor water with the root cause of poor sanitation, um, lack of hand hygiene that impacts also on respiratory infections. And so almost 2 million people are dying every year um, because of poorly managed water sanitation and hygiene. Gordon says countries need to recommit to the targets they have made to save those lives. He notes a major opportunity to do that will occur during an historic U.N. Water and Sanitation Conference in March. For the first time in 50 years, he says the global community will gather to review progress and make voluntary commitments to improve the water situation. The report delves into the impact climate-related extreme weather events have on impeding the delivery of safe wash services. Gordon says the report highlights the importance of climate resilience and adaptation to climate change. And yet when we look at the policy response, uh, whether it's climate resilient technologies, um, which are simple things to avoid um, floods um, or to uh, mitigate uh, droughts, um, simple risk management um, or simple technologies, these are not being put in place. The WHO report calls on governments to dramatically increase investments to extend access to safely managed drinking water and sanitation services. It urges them to scale up support for wash service delivery by putting in place monitoring systems, regulatory functions, and capacity development. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte today officially apologized for the Netherlands' 250 years of involvement in slavery, calling it a crime against humanity. In the first of the former Dutch colonies to react, Aruba's Prime Minister, Minister Evelyn Wever-Kroes, accepted the apology, but others, like the island of St. Martin, said they did not accept it. In his speech at the National Archives in The Hague, Roth said the Netherlands bears responsibility for the great suffering inflicted on enslaved people and their descendants. Some activists and descendants of slaves, however, have been unhappy about how the apology was done. Some groups say it should have come from Dutch King Wilhelm Alexander in former colony Suriname on July 1, 2023, the 160th anniversary of Dutch abolition.
Roth acknowledged that choosing the right moment was complicated and not everyone would be satisfied. The Dutch funded their golden age of empire and culture in the 16th and 17th centuries by transporting around 600,000 Africans as part of the slave trade, mostly to South America and the Caribbean. The big news of the day is that amazing World Cup finale. The world is still talking about the hurt-stopping championship match in Qatar, where Argentina overcame a late challenge from defending champion France to win. The Argentines, led by Lionel Messi, drew 3-3 with France, then took the cup home on penalty kicks, winning 4-2. A short time ago, my colleague Mokbilia Baro spoke with VOA's Kali Abdu, who has been in Qatar for the past month covering all the World Cup action. On the program here, we have our VOA colleague Kali Abdu, who had the opportunity to experience one of the best World Cup finals ever. Kali, uh, talk to us about the electricity you felt and your overall thoughts of the finals yesterday. Uh, thanks for having me on this uh, program. Uh, the uh, finals were absolutely electrifying. The whole city was uh, lit up. On the other hand, uh, on my way to the stadium, I had quite a lot of challenges to get to the stadium because the, it was just simply overcrowded. The entire metro system was overwhelmed by just too many people. The sheer amount of people I saw was quite scary at a certain point. The game, as you as you know, was an absolute classic and it was worth all the uh, hysteria and uh, all the energy that surrounded the city before the game. You know, I think that that final match was, was quite worthy of everything that I experienced yesterday. Absolutely, bro. Uh, on that point, you know, uh, h- how do you think Qatar felt uh, not only hosting the World Cup, but having the two biggest stars from PSG, a team that the Imar of Qatar, Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani, he owns that team, right? So to have mm-hmm. two of the biggest stars of the world that play for your team, you know, mm-hmm. in the World Cup hosted by your country, my God, bro! Like who who wrote this storyline, huh? Yeah, the the the, the scripts, you know, was was. Uh... Was rain in the stars, you know, as they say. It didn't have rain a better script, honestly. It, it all lined up perfectly for them at the end, you know. Um, as you said, these are his two biggest stars in the team that he owns. And both of them, it was just only right that both of them took center stage. And, you know, Mbappe, just, you know, absolutely incredible. Uh, Messi as well. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, when they, they were handing the, 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 I guess, the trophy to Messi yeah. when the Emir put that cloak, you know, he put that traditional cloak on Messi or Ghana, yeah. whatever they call it. Yeah. It was, uh, it, I guess that signified what you're talking about, you know. Right, like right. counting moment almost. <laughs> Yeah. Man, that 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 moment was was honestly so amazing. Um, not only for you know uh, Qatar, but you know even for the entire Middle East, really, right? To see arguably one of the greatest players of all time win the Golden Ball and then also win the the World Cup, and then I believe they call it a bisht. They put that mm. on top of him, and now it's like it's a part of you know their culture. 
seeing that, you know, with the greatest player, arguably the greatest player ever, it must have been unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. No, it was, you know, it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, uh, I will tell you, I have never seen fans just, Messi has a lot of fans here. I have never seen that before in my life. And I've been following and playing football all my life. I've never really seen, you know, just people worship a player the way I've seen uh, uh, Messi fans here. And, And they're people of all races. They're not just from Argentina. It's people from all over the world that were just screaming Messi on the, the way to the stadium, on the way uh, to, to, to watch the game at the giant LED screen and Corniche uh, uh, promenade. And you just could tell that everybody was rooting for Messi. If we can touch on that third place game, you know, not as exciting yeah. in terms of the glitz and the glamour, right, of having the entire world tune in to see the crowning of the World Cup um, champion. But it's still a great game. Two very strong teams in Croatia and Morocco, the Cinderella story of the tournament. Uh, talk to me about uh, that game. Yeah, so that game, it was also uh, highly anticipated here in, in uh, Doha. As you know, Morocco have been the darlings of this tournament. They really won everybody's hearts and everybody was, was rooting for them to at least come third place uh, after they fell to France in the semifinal. But, you know, as the game went, you know, you could just tell Croatia's class. You know, you, you saw a team that, well, you know, they've been there and thereabouts in, 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 at the Euros and I guess the last World Cup. But they are a team that has a lot of experienced players and that showed against Morocco. Obviously, Morocco, uh, before the Fran- France game in the semifinal, they hadn't even conceded a goal <laughs> except their own players scoring an own goal. So they... They were quite tight in the back. So for them to even concede those goals against Croatia just showed you uh, that, you know what, Croatia are not to be slept on. They have quite a lot of class. Even though, to Morocco's credit, you know, they had, uh, to be fair on them, they, they, they had uh, some injuries, I believe. They didn't have the, the, the main players they, they, they usually use in the back. So right. their defense was a little weaker. But all the same, they still they still put in an energetic performance and they had chances. They're uh, loved here in Qatar, even still, even though they lost. They have a lot of respect, and I think that they've won themselves quite a number of times. Kali, this has been amazing. <laughs> thank you for thank you for being on the show. Uh, Kali Abdu from Doha, Qatar. Um, thanks for being on the show, brother. Thanks for having me. That was VOA's Mokbili Baro speaking with our colleague Kali Abdu in Qatar. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer Mokbili Baro and our engineer Patrick Dea, thanks for choosing The Voice of America.
Hello, this is Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up, dance this music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM stations 